The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to the Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to have with us Erin Hudson, who covers distressed debt for Bloomberg News in New York. How are you, Erin? I'm great. Thanks for having me, James. We're also delighted to see Aidan Cheslin, who looks at telecoms and media for Bloomberg Intelligence in London. We'll be coming right back to Aidan a little bit later in the show, so do stay with us. But first, Erin Hudson with Bloomberg News. You've been looking at Carvana, which rose to fame by selling cars from vending machines during the pandemic, then almost went bust. Now they seem to be on the up again. The stock is up more than 800% so far this year, um, and they seem to be sorting out some of their debt issues. But what's the latest on Carvana, Erin? Yeah, so the big news on Carvana is that they announced a debt restructuring alongside their earnings um, last week, and they... So they reduced their debt by about 1.2 billion and they're doing a new equity raise. Um, Garcia, the the family, um, Ernie Garcia is participating in that. And um, it's it's an exciting development, I guess, in the story of Carvana um, because creditors and the company were going back and forth um, or there were different maneuvers that the company was taking and that creditors were taking um, in recent months um, to try and address the company's massive debt load. So this was, you know, a big, a big announcement um, because they reached an agreement and they did it with creditors um, signing on to, they had all signed on to a cooperation agreement and that agreement held throughout this process. So in the distressed debt world, there was, you know, there's kind of a question of how powerful cooperation agreements can be and what is their use. And this was sort of a case where it proved they can be very useful. Okay, so let me just stop you there. They wrote down about a billion dollars, $1.2 billion in debt, which is great. They presumably they cut their interest expense, they termed out maturities, did they? I mean, what what are the specifics of this um, restructuring? Yeah, uh, those are the other points. Uh, extended maturities, deferred some interest payments, and um, tightened tightened some covenants. Um, and so the idea is that this restructuring has sort of given the company more leeway to um, to improve its business, improve performance, and kind of turn itself around. Um, there is still capacity to issue some new debt, I believe, as well. So the, the company still has a lot of options and, um, you know, creditors are kind of on board for that ride. And when we look at the creditors, who who is it we're talking about? Who are the, who are the key people involved here? Well, some of the key people that we know are involved are Apollo, Aries, um, and PIMCO. Um, those are some of them, but of course, there, there, there are a lot more. Um, there's, it's a huge capital structure. Um, 
those are some of the key players. And I think just the fact that those are some of the key players that were sort of known in the market, um, you know, cooperation is not always historically um, thought of when some market participants think of those 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 firms. So um, again, I think there was just question of how effective will this cooperation agreement really be? You know, is there really a track record for all of these different um, all these different funds? You know, cooperating. So I think this was sort of an answer and. You know, people um, have described it to me as a significant development in in the distressed debt marketplace. So let me just stop you there because you talk a lot about cooperation. Um, lenders in this particular case, Carvana, they did work together in lots of ways to try and find the best outcome. But you know, in this new era of restructuring, where we're seeing a lot more of what's been called creditor on creditor violence. How and why did the bondholders coordinate on this particular situation? Well, I think that is sort of a question that we want to answer more, like when people choose to cooperate versus not. Um, in this case, it seems like, all, I guess, all the interests were aligned um, is sort of what we understand. Um, there was no one who had sort of hugely different different a different interest, um, which can sometimes happen in companies where there's secured debt, unsecured debt, maybe there's some other um, instruments as well. There's different holdings where people might have sort of slightly different goals and motivations. Um, in this case, it seemed, as far as we know, like everyone was aligned. Um, so that might help explain part of it. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's a formula at this point. Um, but for sure, this is a big moment that people will look at and, um, you know, sort of a show that creditors can unify and kind of all get on the same page, which I think some people in the market are viewing as a, as a really positive sort of optimistic sign that maybe we're turning a corner on the whole creditor on creditor violence theme and narrative that's really dominated the distressed debt marketplace for the last couple of years. But so this capital structure then is in relative terms less complex. I mean, there wasn't all this up tiering and drop down and all this stuff that's been going on in other situations. Is that is that why the creditors were more aligned and sort of more on the same side of the table? Well, I should say that um, part of the reason the cooperative agreement was formed was because there was a fear that the company might try to kind of strike a deal with a major creditor and that that deal could leave everyone else behind. So I think there was a lot of fear and, you know, I, I should sort of correct the record there. Like some of my colleagues have done a lot of reporting on that um, last year. And that was sort of the driver to, to, to band together because if somebody cut a side deal with the company, then, um, you know, there, was, there wouldn't be a deal for everybody. Um, so I think they decided this would be um, a good moment to, to stand together. Interesting. Okay. So, but the big question, I guess, for the company, do they have a future? I mean, it seemed like definitely a good idea during the height of COVID when no one really wanted to interact with other human beings using vending machines, using the internet to, to buy and sell cars. Plus at that time, you know, used car prices were off the charts. So everyone wanted one. It was a massive um, demand story. What's the state of play now? Does, is, is Carvana a business that we think will survive? Uh, well, time will tell. Um, from 
sources that I've talked to, um, you know, I think that I think that you know it's a it's a compelling idea, and everyone wants to see if they can turn their performance around. So um, that's what you know everyone will be watching, and I think that was you know why this debt restructuring was possible is that it's giving them more time, and um, yeah, we'll see what happens. Interest costs for that company they shot up there at 180 million dollars or something um you know is that now under control just the interest expense um some of the interest payments were deferred so i think it does give them i i don't think that's the same um, pain point as it was previously there has been some um relief there and you mentioned that they do have potential access to raise more debt i mean have have we resolved all the liquidity concerns around this company um you know, I don't know if anyone thinks that all of the problems are fixed permanently. From analysts I've talked to, they're sort of viewing this as it gives the company a, a runway for, of a couple of years. Um, it is possible that, you know, they kind of end up in a similar position down the road um, where these like big fundamental questions will 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 come back. Um, so maybe in hindsight, we will look back in a few years and think of this as more of a Band-Aid solution. But from sources I've talked to now, I think the view is that this is, you know, it's sort of a second chance in a way. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure. We'll see. They certainly have the brand name, but, you know, selling cars online doesn't seem like it's, you know, huge barriers to entry for competition. So, I mean, I guess they're going to they're going to come up against it again. But um, in terms of the broader takeaways, Erin, for credit markets, what, what are the lessons we're learning from this? Um, I would say just the lessons learned is that there there is quite an appetite for cooperation if the conditions are right. And it does seem, um, I'm surprised by the number of people I talk to who sort of do really feel like this is a feel-good type of moment. Um, you know, I that, that was surprising. Um, so... Um, yeah, this, so we'll see what happens if this becomes something that happens a lot more, more, um, in various transactions, restructurings, um, or if, you know, this, this is really kind of an exceptional moment. Um, I'm not sure we can, we can say for sure right now. It's very rare. You'd see, I mean, in, in distressed debt or anywhere in, in markets, a win-win for everyone. And, you know, there's no losers. So I'm surprised that no one's complaining about this one, but. Yeah, I will say that is from from people I've talked to, that is really the takeaway. This is a win-win. And if you flip it to the issuer standpoint, I mean, is this simply a, comp a, a story of a company that expands way too fast during the good times? Of course, they had a huge surge in business during the pandemic. Um, you know, everything was really aligned for them, tailwinds behind them. So there's sort of this broader narrative about companies that did great during the pandemic and you know, were they able, are they able to transition to like a post post pandemic type of world where um, some of those tailwinds are not so strong or now they're facing new headwinds, um, inflation, rising rates. Um, so, you know, I don't know if I can comment uh, directly um, on Carvana, but um, for sure that's a, that's a narrative that's out there as, you know, investors are looking at companies and their performance over time. So before we talk to Aidan Cheslin at Bloomberg Intelligence, 
What's the next big story to watch out for here, Erin? I mean, credit markets seem very bullish right now, even though we're seeing more distress, more bankruptcy. Um, do we expect it, it all to get better from here or are you still going to be very, very busy reporting on distressed debt? People tell me I'll be very, very busy. So I expect there to be a lot more uh, restructurings, a lot more a lot more distress out there. Um, this is what I'm hoping. But then again, there's there is a joke in this market that, you know, every time people say that, nothing happens. So um, so we'll see. But I do think there's a lot of there's going to be some interesting, um, interesting cases on the horizon. Great stuff. Erin Hudson from Bloomberg News. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, James. Read all of Erin's scoops on the Bloomberg terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. So as I mentioned earlier, we're delighted to welcome back on the Credit Edge, Aidan Cheslin, who covers telecoms and media for Bloomberg Intelligence based in London. How's it going, Aidan? Good, James. How are you? Very well, thanks. And I know you cover a lot of different things, but I did want to focus on telecoms again. Last time we spoke, you mentioned the defensive nature of these firms. You know, the economies may be slowing, consumers may be under attack from inflation and higher interest rates, but we always need our phones. Is that still the case or are there any cracks appearing in that narrative? I think it has generally been the case. Um, I think where we're seeing some distress in telecoms is really more in the high yield space, um, where, you know, the new issuance markets there have been closed for some time. Um, there's been only very sporadic um, companies coming and having to pay uh, to do so. Um, and we're starting to get closer to, to refinancing walls um, 2025 onwards uh, with some of the names like Telecom Italia and Altice, uh, the most in focus. So on Telecom Italia, I mean, that's a good name. They are burning through a lot of cash. The ratings are under pressure. What's the, comp uh, the plan to turn that company around? Well, they're trying to sell um, the network. Um, so the fixed line network in particular um, is uh, of interest to KKR. Uh, KKR has been selected as the um, exclusive bidder uh, at this stage. Um, and by the end of September, we're supposed to hear more uh, about whether that's going ahead um, and what uh, that might end up looking like. Um, there's still a degree of uncertainty here, which is that um, the less preferred bidder that's um, been pushed to the side for now uh, included um, CDP, one of the government's uh, own investment vehicles. So there's a little bit of uh, uh, uncertainty as whether the government would allow um, Italy uh, to lose control of this asset. Um, and so there is some political risk uh, to this deal completing still. So just so we know the, the importance of this one, Aidan, what's the scale? How important is this company in the European telecoms context? Well, it's the Italian incumbent, so the number one player um, in fixed line in particular in Italy. Um, they have Their problem has been um, for a, a long period of time now, um, an elevated debt position. Um, so net debt... Uh, at the end of 2023, uh, was in the order of um, 25 to 30 billion euros. Um, this grid sale uh, could net them around somewhere around two thirds of that figure. So um, it would make a serious, serious inroad in, into the debt. The only problem is separating off the network. Network obviously leaves you with just the uh, service company, which would be uh, a lot more susceptible to, to competition uh, and to volatile earnings. Can they still access the bond market and how expensive would it be? They've done so twice um, this year. Um, the problem was um, that the cost keeps racking up every time they do it. Um, so they access the market 
um, in uh, January um, with a, a six handle uh, on the coupon. Um, and then uh, they came again um, much more recently um, with uh, another bond uh, and the coupon on that one was almost 8%. Um, so the problem is the longer they go on burning cash, increasing leverage, the longer this deal takes to materialize, um, the interest costs are just going up and up and up. They are also doing some liability management, though. They're buying back some bonds with tender offers and terming out maturities. How's that going for them? Yeah, um, that was the, the focus of these recent new issues. So um, I think that's just them trying to, to, to extend these maturities as best they can. They've still got a bit of a wall um, 2025. They haven't really cured that problem. Um, so there's still more to do. So what's the next big thing to watch out for here, Aidan? Is there a date by which that sale needs to go through? Is there some kind of calendar of events that we're looking out for? Um, they've given exclusivity to KKR until the end of September. So uh, that's kind of the deadline, although these deadlines have been rolled over before, but that's, that's the deadline we have at the moment for a, a deal actually coming about. I think what bondholders are really looking for is a bit more clarity on the future capital structure. Um, at the moment, um, they were unable to answer on the last analyst call uh, whether debt would be separated with the network into the new KKR unit or whether they'd have to retain the debt and use the cash proceeds to, to start tendering for some of that debt. And if they did that, well, we still don't know exactly which bonds would be tendered and which ones wouldn't. So there's a huge amount of uncertainty for bondholders, even if the deal does go through. Um, in our view, it's very unlikely that whether you end up in a network business with KKR, which would probably have a high degree of leverage, or whether you end up in a service company with a comparatively low amount of leverage, we don't see either of those um, eventualities leading to, to an investment grade rating. Um, you may have some improvement over the current position, but, but not much. Um, and the real tail risk here is that if a deal doesn't occur, um, then the company is in big trouble. It has a huge amount of debt, rapidly rising interest costs, um, a big funding need and a very competitive market. Um, and our thesis has been that if you don't get this, this deal, um, you can, could end up with credit spreads trading more in line with something like an Altice, uh, where the market has, has started to price in a more distressed valuation um, in anticipation of those maturities in, in 2025. Okay, so we'll be watching your research very closely on that one. Um, before we go, though, I did want to also ask you about Celnex, which is a Spanish tower operator. Why is that one on your radar, Aidan? Yeah, a bit more of a positive story on this one. Last year, they massively changed um, their corporate strategy, which for the last few years has been an absolute acquisition-a-thon. Um, but they've reined that in. Um, they want to, to get the S&P rating up from double B plus to triple B minus. Um, they actually reported results this week. Um, which seem to fit um, or, or st still seem to be trending in the right direction for an upgrade, we think sometime next year. The one thing that could bring that forward um, would be if they were to sell or partner on, on some of their assets and bring an external investment and get leverage down a little bit quicker. Um, but they're on track to, to a free cash flow break even in, in 2024. Um, the capex starts to tail away in 2025, and I think that's probably the trigger for S&P to raise them to triple B minus. Um, the credit spreads for them, they still trade wide of their investment grade peers. So the closest comparison is American Tower, um, which 
trades tighter than them in euros when normally we would expect um, European companies tend to trade tighter than Yankee issuers in euros. So um, it seems like there's a reasonable amount of room for Selnex spreads to potentially outperform as and when that, that upgrade comes through. How much debt are we talking about here? So Thelnex, um has a pretty significant um, euro curve. Um, their leverage uh, has been coming down um, from around seven times um, fully adjusted uh, the way the rating agencies uh, do it. Um, and I think that's going to come down to around five to five and a half times in, in the medium term. Um, so it's a fairly, fairly significant reduction in leverage. Um, and the rating agencies as well, it's worth remembering, um, have become a lot more um, tolerant of leverage at tower companies recently. There was an S&P report that basically said all of the tower companies had been given an extra half a turn of leverage um, tolerance within their credit ratings. I think as the business model um, has kind of shown itself to be quite resilient through, through the, the various recent shocks. So are there any particular parts of the curve for Selnex you particularly like or you're interested in, you know, that you think might move more than others? Yeah, I think um, when you look at that comparison that I was talking about to American Tower, um, it becomes more pronounced at the longer end. Selnex as a high yield issue has a bit of a steeper curve. So um, around the sort of uh, seven to nine year kind of maturity points in euros um, looks to, to be where there's, there's most relative value against the, the US comparative. Interesting. So, uh, Cellnex going up potentially and uh, Telecom Italia going down. That's it. Thanks very much, Aidan Cheslin of Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all of his great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do check it out and I hope to see you back on the show soon, Aidan. Thanks, James. And thanks again to Erin Hudson from Bloomberg News. Read all of her great credit scoops on the Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.